It's not too often as an Episcopal priest that I get heckled. It's not too often that I get heckled, particularly about a sermon. But in all the years that I've been ordained, over 30, whenever this gospel readings come up, I've had so many people heckle me about it ahead of time. About, oh, you're going to talk about divorce? And an equal number of people afterwards saying, oh, you dodged that one, or (laughs) something to that effect. So yes, I will talk about divorce. I'll just do it my way of getting a long way around to it. So, about 20 years ago, I got to go on a pilgrimage to Israel, see the holy sites, both Christian and Jewish. And we had this fantastic tour guide. She was a native of Israel. She was, uh, had advanced degrees in history and theology. Just the best tour guide you can imagine. And she was Orthodox Jewish. Well, we toured these sites. We spent 18 hours together on this pilgrimage, the 30 people and I, as well as the guide. And so we got to know each other relatively well, in that way that a, a short, intense experience can. And so near the end of our time together, one of the people on the tour group asked our guide, so, as an Orthodox Jewish woman, did you get a prenuptial agreement before you got married? Now, I thought this was a rather personal question to ask, but that came out of my own ignorance. Because what I didn't know was that within the Jewish tradition, including Israel, since the 1950s, there's been a huge amount of encouragement for couples to get a certain kind of prenuptial agreement, a theological one. And part of this was an attempt by people within Judaism to try to reduce divorce rate, but also a realistic perspective that in the post-World War II era, divorce was becoming very common and it should be dealt with compassionately. So what developed was this prenuptial agreement in which the couple talked about ahead of time various ways in which the divorce process would take place and it included, this being the 1950s, how much the groom would have to pay the bride. So, our guide and her fiancé are going through their premarital counseling with their rabbi. And the rabbi comes to this part of the counseling where he's filling out the paperwork for the prenuptial agreement, and he asks the groom, so how much is your wife worth? And he, very wisely, says, she's priceless. So, he turned to her and said, well, what do you think you're worth, my dear? And she turned to her husband and said, I think I'm worth $100 million. And he kind of blanched. <laughs> he got a little pale. And she said, but since this is a religious document, remember, she's a scholar in history, she said, I don't think we should use the current denomination for money. We should use the ancient one, the biblical one because this is a biblical type of covenant. So I would be satisfied with 100 million shekels. Well, the husband-to-be let out a sigh of relief and very quickly agreed, since shekels were just a historic denomination of money. 
And the rabbi laughed and said, that's what you want. This, that fulfills the requirement. Completed the form. Well, fast forward about 10 years, and the state of Israel decides that they no longer want to call their money pounds. So it was based on the English money, since those were the colonial powers when the state of Israel was formed. Instead, they should have their own name for it. So they went to the Bible to look for a good name for money and came up with shekels. So now, our tour guide said, she has the safest marriage in Israel. (laughs) Since, by law, her husband would have to give her 100 million shekels, which, in current translations, is $26 million plus. So, she is almost priceless, and her marriage is very secure. Now, the reason I tell you this story is that I think when we approach how we deal with Jewish laws and practices and all that, we can get so much wisdom because we are seeing how Jesus operates. And we have that in this morning's gospel reading, where Jesus is giving commentary on how to live out just a handful of the different practices and laws and ethical guidelines that were part of Judaism in his time. And most of the modifications or interpretations or applications that developed through the centuries were to make these laws more pastoral, we would say nowadays, at least clergy would, make them kinder, make them more practical, make them applicable to changing worlds. And so there are various modifications that were made from the biblical beginnings to thousand years later, how they were actually being lived out in Jesus's time. And one of them was that With divorce, a man had to write out a certificate of divorce. Now, that's not a great way of doing it these days. But in the time of Jesus, actually in the centuries before the time of Jesus, it was a huge amount of progress for the status of women. Because what it said was the man had to divorce the woman. That he couldn't have multiple wives, He couldn't leave her trapped in a marriage that no longer existed in reality. She was no longer going to be seen as property. Instead, she was a human being, and therefore the man had to write out a certificate of divorce. He had to follow through, treat her well, and that would dissolve the marriage. So that had been going on for probably about a thousand years when Jesus came along. But by the time Jesus came along, this way of doing divorce had become very cruel to women because men would withhold that certificate of divorce until they got everything they wanted out of their soon-to-be ex. And so Jesus basically said, okay, you guys are messing up again. So I'm going to modify again the interpretation of how to carry this through and took away from men this really almost hammer they could hold over their wives in terms of divorce. It had to be done differently. It had to be done more compassionately. And that carries through the theme of almost all of these teachings that we have from Jesus today as part of the Sermon on the Mount. 
What they do is they keep us or draw us back from treating other people as objects, as property, as folks who are not worthy of being human. And therefore, it helps us to that deeper truth that all of us are beloved children of God. No one deserves to be called a fool, which in the translation really isn't adequate. It really is a term for a being that's not quite human. That we don't get to think of other people as being inhuman. We don't get to think of people as being less worthy of God's love than ourselves. And then there's this term about throwing ourselves into hell. Tearing an eye out. We don't have a lot of Christians walking around with eye patches. So we know that this is not being lived out. It's instead poetic on the part of Jesus. That when he talks about casting our bodies into hell or our bodies being cast into hell, what he's actually talking about in the original language is the medical waste dump outside of Jerusalem. The actual term is for the actual dump where the bodies of convicts who were killed under capital punishment or human body parts that were lost from medical reasons or animals that you found in your backyard that you don't want buried. You take it to this dump and there's a perpetual fire, sound familiar? A perpetual fire that's there for the purpose of destroying these carcasses in a sanitary way. So Jesus was not talking about eternal punishment. He was instead being poetic and using a metaphor that people would go, oh, I get that. But unfortunately, basically, since the Bible started to be translated in English, we've gotten it wrong. Because Jesus is not talking about eternal punishment. He's talking about instead a vivid image of unpleasantness that doesn't go beyond this lifetime. It's instead about right now that if we are treating other people simply as objects, if we are looking at people in a way that objectifies them, if we're talking to them in a way that dehumanizes them, we're living in a dump. We're living in a smoky, stinky dump inside ourselves. And we don't have to. One of the reasons that the prophets came, one of the reasons that Jesus came to the earth is so that we can be freed of all the junk that humans almost automatically produce within themselves. All the ways in which we want to come out on top in any perceived competition between humans, all the ways in which we want to be right and others be wrong even better, all the ways in which we want to have our own needs filled before anyone else, we can be freed of that by following Christ, by following the prophets beforehand. And that is the point of this whole collection this morning, of being freed from the ways in which humans typically misbehave and treat other people as if they're not worthy of being human, treating other people in very selfish manners. So, if my friend the tour guide did in fact have to go through a divorce, 
there would have been authorities to say, no, it's not $26 million. We can modify that. That's the point of having a brain that God has given us so that we can apply even recent laws, even recent practices to what's relevant today. Same thing for us. That when we read scripture, when we hear church teachings, whatever it is that helps us guide who we are to become, we are always to engage our brains. We are always to engage our prayers so that we can apply what's around us to what should be inside us. So that we give room for God to work and tell us how we really are supposed to live in this particular moment, with this particular group of people, with these particular challenges. Because there's not going to be a forever and ever universal rule about an everyday event. Every day changes. We just have to look at what happens now over the internet to know that things are quite different than just a handful of years before. So we always have to be thinking. We always have to be praying. We always have to be listening and paying attention so that the life we live is the life that God wants us to have. A life that is full of peace and joy, that is freed from anxiety, that is equipped to love, forgive, and share the good news of Christ. That's what God wants for us, more than blind obedience. To live lives of love. Love for God, love for others, love for ourselves. So that the kingdom of God can be shown through the way we live and the way that we are. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.